Our Father, we submit to the sovereign God who is transcendent and yet imminent in the lives of his people. You have promised that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you will be present. And so we know that you're here today in our midst, and you're here for our good. Father, we pray that our hearts will be linked together through the word and through the spirit of the living God who empowers and indwells each one of us who truly know you. And so, Father, we ask you to bless your word to our hearts today. Help us, give us understanding, give us enlightenment. And I ask, Lord, that you'll be glorified in all that is said and done in this room during these next few minutes. And, Lord, throughout our Sunday school, in each class, we ask for your empowerment. And in the, th- in the service, which is concurrently transpiring, that you will minister there too. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. I'd like to begin reading with verse 18. And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But let not God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance, while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. You shall make an altar of earth for me. You shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And if you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it out of cut stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. And you, will not, you shall not go up by steps <clears throat> to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. God is here in, in this particular passage instructing Moses to capitalize on what God has demonstrated to the people. God has proven his presence, even though it says he's speaking to them from out of heaven, there is the presence of God displayed on the top of the mountain. And again, if you could visualize this this bald red granite peak rising up nearly 8,000 feet in elevation in the southern Sinai Desert. And if you could just kind of see this this black cloud sitting on the top and lightning flashes coming from it and as as if fire were roaring up from it and the noise that was being sounded, not only the noise of the fire and the thunder, but the the noise of the trumpet, the blowing of the shofar, which was common in those days, the ram's horn, and uh, then the quaking that went along with it. All of this was, uh, was uh, such a, a sense, produced such sensibility in the people that they were themselves trembling. 
as they looked at this vision, and they were so frightened that they said to Moses, you tell us what God is saying. Don't let him speak directly to us, because with this great demonstration up there, we're afraid we might die. So what Moses is instructed by God is to use this great demonstration now to emphasize to the people of Israel to drive home the truth of what it means to worship God. And the bottom line was, worship Yahweh only. This is a hard truth. It's a truth that many Christians today even struggle with. Especially in our pluralistic society where we're told, hey, everybody's right. And, and let everybody alone. Let them worship however they like. Let them say whatever they want. Let them do whatever they want. Because whatever feels good, that's what you're supposed to do. And, and whatever's right to you is right to you. There is no ultimate truth. There are no absolutes. That's what our society tells us. But the scripture is very diametrically opposed to that. The word of God does not allow for any other focus of worship. In those days, it was an idol, a, a Baal, or an ashtara, an image of gold, or a pillar, a sacred pillar, whatever it was. To us today, it's a rock star. You know, it's a movie star, it's a football or a basketball player, whatever it might be. It's our car, it's our job, it can be anything that we fall down in effect worship. Not, not that we literally get down on our knees and bow, but we give our time and our attention and our thought and, it, and our focus to that. And that amounts to worship. That which we think about most and that which we give our most attention to and our most strength to and our, and our money to and everything else will be the thing which we worship. So the bottom line was, worship God only. He will not abide the worship of anything else. Now the societies amongst which the Israelites were living and would live were pluralistic. They worshiped many gods. They were polytheistic, many gods. In many cases they were also animistic and they believed that there were spirits in everything. And, and so to them, they were always hedging their bets. It's like in Rome. I've mentioned this before. If you go to the modern city of Rome, you'll find in the modern city of Rome, there is a building, which is a very old building. It dates back nearly 2,000 years. It's called the Pantheon. And it was specifically built to house all of the gods of the peoples that were conquered by Rome. And so they had niches for all these gods. That way, you see, they didn't offend any gods along the way. They hedged their bets. It's like the ancient Greeks. They had an altar to the unknown god. We worship this god, that god, and the other god. In case we miss one, here's an altar to him too. And that's the normal human attitude. But God says, no, you will worship me only, and no one and no thing else. In contrast to the Egyptians and the other pagan peoples amongst whom the Israelites would live, they were not to build or erect huge temples and great altars for the worship of these gods. Yes, later on, in fact, shortly, we'll be getting to the fact that God told them to build a tabernacle. But you know that tabernacle was a very small structure, and it was specifically spelled out by God, piece by piece. It wasn't human imagination, thinking about how we can make God happy by building some great temple. I mean, you go to Greece and you go to the Acropolis and here's that wonderful structure called the, Pantheon, uh, the Parthenon, which was dedicated to Athena, 
Parthenogenesis, the, uh, the goddess brought about by virgin birth. Uh, Athena, the goddess of Athens. And of course they built this wonderful structure in order to please this goddess so that she'd be happy with the city of Athens and bless the city of Athens. It's an attempt to extract from a goddess her blessing because of what the people did. So they earned the blessing. But God is saying, don't build me statues, don't build me worship centers, don't build me huge temples and try to extract from me my blessing because you have earned it, because you never can earn it. Worship God simply. Build an, an altar of earth or of rough, unhewn stones. Was there something specifically desecrating about using a tool on a stone to make an altar? Simply because God said so, that's all. He said, don't do that. What he wanted was the people to understand that God's favor, God's forgiveness, came because of the blood of the sacrifice, which was a covering, provided an atonement for them. It was not the great structure in which you bought God's blessing. It was by yielding to his plan of the blood of the atonement. God wanted people who would be humble, who would be in submission, who would have a heart of repentance. You know, if you go up before a pagan deity and you've built this grand and glorious temple, you go before this deity with a heart of great pride. I have built this great temple and now you must bless me. We, we cannot go before God with that attitude at all. We must go before God with an attitude of total repentance, submission, and humility to Him. Because we're not trying to do the work to appease an egocentric deity, but to walk in the way that He has set before us. In verse 26, we have a strange statement. It seems strange, at least, uh, as we read that verse. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Well, this particular statement, I believe, has both a temporal and a spiritual application. We'll talk about the temporal first. The idea was, and this was characteristic of the pagans, they built a, 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 an altar, a high altar, with steep steps up to it. If, if you want to visualize it, if you've seen the pictures of, or actually been to Mexico or Guatemala to see the, the great Maya pyramids, it's sort of that idea. These steep steps up to the top where you would offer a sacrifice to the deity on the top. Well, the Israelites dressed differently than we do. Uh, underwear was not uh, something they wore. And uh, <clears throat> they didn't have Hanes and all these other good uh, companies in existence in those days. And, and their garments were usually a coat or shirt-like structure, you know, a tunic-like thing which could be brought together at the waist. And so obviously going up these steep steps and uh, parading around at the top would prevent, present a, a view that would be uh, something less than contributing to the spirit of worship. And so God is saying, don't do that. But I think the more important understanding here than that is the idea that the pagans built these altars these high altars, in order to, as you read in Genesis chapter 11, that their tops might reach unto heaven. 
In other words, they built these high altars that they might make themselves acceptable to the, de de to the, de <laughs> the deity, to the divine one, whoever it was that they were <laughs> worshiping. Uh, trying to reach God by their own works. And that is where spiritual nakedness comes in. To try to come before God by our own strength and our own power, by our own works, and to make ourselves presentable is to be spiritually naked. We must be clothed in the robes of righteousness, which are given to us by obedience to God and by acceptance of the uh, plan of salvation and atonement that was been presented by God through blood, the sacrifice of blood. The concept of, uh, that's expressed to us in the great pyramids that were built by the uh, Mayas, the pyramids that were built by the Aztecs, is the same idea as this here. Probably, as far as we know, there are no remnants of any kind of altar or structure as large as the pyramids of the Aztecs and the Mayas and so forth in the Canaanite area. But the idea is the same. Of course, we're talking about a much earlier period of time, too, than when the Maya structures were built. But you can just understand these, these steep steps up to the altar for, for the worshiping of God, very common amongst the pagans of the ancient Near East. And so it would be reflected even in the New World. God is not impressed by human works. That's really a hard concept for us to get through because we live in a country where from the very beginning it's been do it yourself, be independent, you know, win your, your farm out of the wilderness and fight off the Indians yourself and be a strong independent person. Well, that's okay, but not when you face the divine. When you face Almighty God, you cannot be strong and independent must be in submission to him and broken, obedient, because that's what he wants. He doesn't want an independent person who can do it himself, because no one can do it himself. In my flesh there dwells no good thing, but in Christ I can do all things. David wrote in Psalm 51:17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So we have got to come, and I trust we have, but we've got to, in our society, come to an understanding that God wants us to be totally dependent upon Him. That doesn't mean that we sit back in our little comfortable chair and say, Oh God, this is what needs to happen. You go do it now. I'll just sit here. But it means that in all that we do, we trust Him to strengthen us, to empower us, to enable us to do it, and to do it for His glory. And that was not the attitude of the pagans. And so this was the idea that God was trying to get through to Israel. Now in chapters 21, 22, and 20, first part of 23 at least, of Exodus, there are many corollary ordinances given to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, in some way, were sort of like the United States Constitution. The United States Constitution was drawn up as a skeleton to be fleshed out by Congress over the years that would pass. Unfortunately, Congress has kind of made it a little bit overweight. <laughs> but nevertheless, this was the idea. So it is with the Ten Commandments. Not that the people would later fill it out, but God himself fleshed it out 
And that's what you find in the writings of the rest, much of the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, and specifically, of course, in the restatement in Deuteronomy. But in chapter 21, chapter 22, and the first part of chapter 23, we have statements which expanded upon and further defined the statements of the Ten Commandments to guide the Israelites in their daily living. And we have already read many of those, you may have noticed. As we looked at each of the Ten Commandments, we quoted frequently from chapter 21, chapter 22, and the first part of chapter 23. Therefore, I am going to move at this point to chapter 23, verse 20, to uh, pick up the narrative in our study of Moses. So I'd like to begin reading uh, with verse 20 of chapter 23. God is speaking now about what is going to transpire in the years ahead. Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you to, into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. But if you will truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorite, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. But you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and he will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets ahead of you, that they may drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year, that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. And I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and with their, or with their gods. You shall not live, they shall not live in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Chapters 20 through 23 provide a statement from God as to how he expected Israel to live. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not bear false witness. These were statements of how the people serving God will live. This is how you demonstrate the fact that you believe in me and that you are my people. And you know, that demonstration is extremely important because there is no other way in this world other than the very broad general revelation 
that Romans chapter 1 talks about. There's no other way that people in this world can directly know God except through God's people. And so God's people have got to display the character of God. And that's what God is driving at here. Now, in this passage, we discover that God is telling them how he is going to help them to perform his commands. God doesn't just say, do this or else, and they just leave us to try to figure out how to do it. He enables us to do it. He empowers us to do it. He gives us the desire to do it. And in this passage, he is saying how that will be. He says, I will send an angel to go before you. He's going to prepare the way. He's going to guard you and guide you in the way. I'm going to send an angel. The question is, who is this angel? Is this Gabriel? Is this Michael? Or is this the invented one, Raphael? Or any of the other invented ones? There may be one whose name is Raphael, but he's not in the scripture. <laughs> it was Yahweh. It was God himself in angelic form. And I think we can know this as we look at this passage. For one instance, it says, my name is in him. My name is in him. You remember we talked about what it meant, what God's name meant. God's name was not just a title, just, just a little, few little words you stick up there so you can label God. His name is a definition of who he is. It's his character. It, it includes his attributes. So if the name of God is in this angel, then God is in this angel. God is the angel himself. His presence was there. I believe so. Except we aren't told that he was visible. So it becomes a manifestation only in the sense of what God is speaking here through Moses. Secondly, it says in this passage, he will not pardon your transgressions. Well, that implies that he could. And if he could pardon your transgressions, then he's not an angel. Because only God can forgive sin. No angel can forgive sin. Nobody can forgive sin except God alone. And then thirdly, the idea that my angel will go before you and guide you and keep you is the concept of the good shepherd. And who is the good shepherd? Well, certainly it is Christ, it's God, it's Yahweh. And of course then there also, it says in this... Um, in verse 22, if you will truly obey his voice and do all that I say, <laughs> to me seems to indicate also that God is speaking of his own manifestation in angelic form. Now, this promise in verse 20 is being made specifically to the Israelites. But let me read that verse again because it is really a neat verse. Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Well, obviously, I don't think it takes a lot of imagination to understand that as a general statement of God's blessing upon his people in all times and in all ages. I have sent my angel, I have sent my spirit to be with you, to guide you along the way and to bring you into that place that I have prepared. Paul said, I know whom I, in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep me until that day. God goes with us and keeps us along the way. That doesn't mean we don't falter. It doesn't mean we don't stumble. It doesn't mean that as we walk, walk along the path, we don't see a little rabbit trail and take off on it for a while. 
but it means that through our lives we're progressing along the path that God has sent before us. Some quicker, some slower, but nevertheless that is the direction in which we're headed. And God is bringing us by His indwelling Spirit through our wilderness experiences. Some of us may not feel like we're having much of a wilderness experience right this minute, you know? Maybe you've got all your bills paid and you're in reasonably good health and, and you're going to have something good happen to you next week, going on vacation or something, you know? And so you may not think of that as a wilderness experience, but oh, how quickly it can turn, right? Oh, how quickly it can turn. And uh, some of you have been through some rather significant wilderness experiences, uh, not just recently, but many times in the past. But in all of them, God has never forsaken you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And those are the words of the sovereign God. And they are unconditional to the believer. He's bringing us safely to the prepared land, right? Fortunately for us, the prepared land is not Canaan. Not that it's not okay to go to Canaan if you want to. And, uh, you know, it's neat to go over there and visit the land. But Jesus, in the 14th chapter of John, said these well-remembered words. G uh, John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Wonderful promise. And I just love the, the fact that, you know, the Old Testament makes a statement and you can find a parallel statement in the New Testament which simply demonstrates that Jesus Christ, Yahweh, whatever you want to call him, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is an unchanging, immutable God. And his promises have always been there. Our hearts are not to be troubled. Believe in God. It says, believe in God, believe also in me. The language there is a language of parallelism. Believe in God, believe in me. Those are equalities. You believe in God, you are believing in me. You believe in me, you are believing in God. I am God, is what Jesus is specifically saying there. The immediate promise, of course, in this passage, in the 20th verse of Exodus 23, is that God is going to protect the Israelites there in the Sinai wilderness, in their sojourn. Now again, I, I tried to describe for us earlier on when the Israelites first went into the Sinai what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the Garden of Eden. We're not even talking about Caldwell Park. <laughs> we're talking about Sinai Desert. If you look at a map of the world to discover where the major desert regions of the world are, you'll discover if you begin over at the Atlantic coast in North Africa and you go straight across, you come across through the Sahara Desert, the largest single desert in the world, and it goes right on across the Red Sea through the Sinai Peninsula into the Saudi Arabian Peninsula and across into Iran. And that's one desiccated area. About the only water that shows up there is in oases. And it rains very little. That's why they don't have much trouble. You notice in the satellite photography, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but 
the satellite photography, they show pictures of this part of the world, and, and it's hard to see Europe, and, and parts of Asia are obliterated, and parts of Africa are, but it's almost always clear through this region. Sinai Peninsula, right there, you know. And almost never any clouds there. It doesn't rain there. <laughs> I mean, it's a very, very bleak place. Um, about the only vegetation exists uh, in wadis, uh, any vegetation of any size, trees and so forth. We'll be talking about some of those trees a little bit later here. Not today, but when we talk about the tabernacle. But, uh, you know, enough vegetation to keep a few sheep alive and so forth, but that's, that's about it. So it's a pretty stark place. And God said, I will be with you in it. Years ago, we stood on a precipice in southern Israel. This precipice is where David Ben-Gurion is buried. He wanted to be buried in this place of a wonderful view. And you look one way, it's kind of, it's the hill country. You turn the other way and it just drops right off. And it drops off into the wilderness of Zin, it's called. And it looks like a place where they would just have a wonderful time shooting old westerns. You know, dry, barren area. And, and you look out across this vast area of wilderness, there's a little bitty creek that runs down there through uh, the bottom of it. And you can understand, I mean, God provided for them even in the wilderness. Little bitty creeks are not going to feed very many people or keep alive very many people. So as we continue on in our study of Moses, we're going to discover that God gave them water in the wilderness miraculously on many occasions. Speak to a rock and whoosh, water comes bursting forth from it in order to provide for the people in a very, very bleak land. The question is, God is saying, I am bringing them to a prepared land. How is this land prepared? How is it a prepared land for Israel? Well, most of us know that when the Westerners came across, they came across the Mississippi and they started to migrate into the Great Plains, they had to literally carve their homesteads out of untilled soil. That's where John Deere had to come along. <laughs> John Deere. And, uh, you know, produce the, the um, what do you call that thing? Plow. Steel plow that would cut the heavy, heavy soil of the Great Plains. But Israel wasn't going into a land that had never been worked before. That was virgin land. They were going into a land that was prepared. Who had prepared it? Well, God had prepared it. But what had God used to prepare it? To prepare it. He'd used the Canaanites. God says in Scripture that he will even use the wicked to accomplish his purpose. And he used the Canaanites to prepare the land. How did he do that? He had them build houses and build cities. Now, they didn't know God had anything to do with this. Well, they worshipped their own gods. But they had nothing, no knowledge of Yahweh, the, the king of the universe. And they didn't know that what they were doing was being done for him so that he could prepare the land for his people. They're the ones that plowed the fields. They're the ones that put in the orchards. They're the ones that put in the vineyards. They're the ones that, that walled off the various fields. I mean, they prepared the land. So that when Israel came, they came to a turnkey country. Walk in and take over. Why is it that the manna ceased as soon as they crossed the River Jordan? Because they were now in the land that they were going to harvest from. That the fields were theirs, the grapes were theirs, the figs were theirs, the olives were theirs. Whatever was there was theirs because God was giving it to them. 
And so God had prepared the land through the hands of the Canaanites so that when Israel would move in, the very first thing they had to do was simply harvest. Harvest the crops that were already prepared for their own use. God greatly desired to bless his people, and so he warned them. When God wants to bless, God warns. Because although God's love is unconditional, his blessing is conditional. He warned his people to be ever alert for the temptation to disobey him. They were to obey his voice. This is his voice. Many of us will admit to the fact we've never heard God speak to us verbally. I've never heard God, at least that I, that I remember, I've never heard God actually say something to me that I could have registered on my eardrum. But he's, this is how he speaks. I'm not saying he never speaks to people audibly because I've heard testimony of people who felt that he had spoken audibly to him, to them. But everyone who is a believer hears God's words through this book because this is God's word. This is his voice. And that's why he is giving the word to Israel on Mount Sinai. And that is why Moses, when he comes down from the mountain, will put it down in writing. He will write out all these things that Israel was to do. God was bringing Israel into a heathen environment. And so he was warning them. And he warns them sternly, and he warns them often. Ever wonder why God repeats himself so much? It's because we're dense. He warned them to obey him and to reject the gods of the people who were there. If they rebelled against God, their transgressions would close the door to divine blessing. But if they obeyed, what would God do if they obeyed? Would God would give them plentiful food. All of their crops would grow and, and, and grow fully. None of their trees would cast their fruit ahead of time. Their vineyards, everything would be fruitful and bounteous if they obeyed. Their women would never miscarry. None of the women would ever be barren. Uh, they would have health. Their enemies would be God's enemies and he would eliminate them. I mean, such a deal. And you, you might look at that and say, wow, I mean, that's a win-win situation. The problem is, the Israelites were people. They were human. And as humans, they had an ally inside them, an ally of the evil one, the fallen nature. And uh, the evil one seems to know how to stir up our fallen nature. And so it was not a win-win situation in reality because they sinned and thus shut the door to God's blessing time and time again. Just read the book of Judges again sometime. I mean, they're following the course of Israel like this, you know. Blessing, crash. Blessing, crash. And God has to raise up another uh, judge, a charismatic leader, to bring them out of the crisis to bring them back to God. And you'll notice every time, the only way they got God's blessing was to come back to obedience. And when they turned their backs on him and started worshiping other gods, then God just shut off the door of blessing. How is this God going to get our attention? If God just blessed us in the midst of our disobedience, what good is that? Confirm us in our sin. God's not going to do that. 
Now in verse 28, the word hornets shows up. The, the term hornets is used. And I believe the term is used figuratively. I don't think God just sent a bunch of little yellow jackets through the land to chase everybody out. Not even Africanized bees. I think it refers to God's miraculous intervention on the part of Israel in driving out the Canaanites. Now remember, Israel was in slavery in Egypt. As slaves, do you suppose that the Egyptians trained them to be troops and equipped them with weapons? I don't think so. That'd be sort of like the Southerners in the South before the Civil War giving all the slaves weapons and training them to be soldiers. Right, sure, they're going to do that. Uh, we, we don't even often realize how many times those slaves rebelled without any weapons. If you'd given them weapons, slavery would have been over a whole lot sooner than it was. And so the Israelites were not equipped. They were not trained as soldiers. They were marching around out in the wilderness. Now, Moses, we're told in Scripture, put them in martial array, that is, organized them and had them marching groups so they didn't get lost and disorganized. And they had a little bit of training, they had a little bit of experience. They fought the Amalekites under Joshua. But when they were going to go into Canaan, this was not the modern Israeli army. You know, with 600 F-16s ready to go in there and blast the enemy with rockets and tanks and all the rest. These were a bunch of desert dwellers coming in there. They had a few short swords and maybe a few shields and some spears and so forth. But they were marching into a land of walled cities. The Canaanites were known as a warlike people, and they had trained armies. Later on in the book of Judges, we're going to discover at the time of Deborah that they had to go against a Canaanite army which had 900 iron chariots. Now, the chariots of that day were sort of the tanks of our day in some way. And so obviously the Canaanites were better trained, better equipped, better prepared for war than Israel. So how's Israel going to beat them? Oh, right, God knocks the walls down to Jericho. That's a big help, of course. But uh, what is this hornet? I believe the hornet is the inexplicable terror that God put in the hearts of the Canaanites because God's people were coming. And how was that terror transmitted? By the word of mouth. Because the scripture tells us that they had heard of what God had done to the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. They had heard of what God did to Jericho. You see, they hear of these things, and so God puts in them an uncontrollable fear so, so that their hearts just melt within them, so much so that we're going to be seeing pretty soon that one of the great alliances of five cities would come over to Joshua and say, Oh, Joshua, we've come from a very long distance. We've heard how great you are, and, and so we want to have a, uh, an alliance with you. And Joshua, without checking with God, says, Sure, great, you know probably tickled his ego. Well, I'm a mighty warrior and they're afraid. So he signs this treaty and finds out they're the next city he's supposed to conquer. Well, what did he do that for? Because they were scared spitless. And they figured they'd, they'd better make treaty with Israel first than get destroyed. And so th this hornet, I believe, is the terror of God that was put in the hearts of these people. In fact, in the book of Joshua, we read from chapter 24, verse 12, it says, Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword or your bow. 
you look at that verse and you say, wait a minute, I just read this book of Joshua. And Israel conquered the Amorites, and Israel killed the two kings, Og and Sion, of Gilead and Bashan. So what's this verse saying? It says, not by your sword and bow. What it is saying is, you were able to defeat them because I had prepared the way. I enabled you. It was really me who gave you the victory, although your sword actually took that man's life. You would never have done it. You couldn't have done it if I had not been the hornet to put terror in their hearts and to cause them to melt before you and to be defeatable. God's intervention became like a plague of hornets, discomfiting, if you will, the Canaanites and making them defeatable. It's kind of like the ball team that comes onto the field, absolutely certain they're going to get creamed. And what happens? They get creamed. <laughs> it reminds me of this, and I may have mentioned it before, but uh, some of you may have remembered of the great battle that was fought on October 21st, 1805. I don't mean you remember it from you know, reading about it at that time, but you know, you've read about it, certainly. <laughs> uh, there, there's a great monument in, in downtown London uh, to this battle. In fact, the whole square is called Trafalgar Square, and the monument has uh, Lord Nelson on the top. But the French admiral had a fleet of 33 warships in this port here in southern Spain called Cadiz. And Napoleon said, you go out there and you fight Nelson and you clear the channel of ships so I can get an invasion army across there to England. He says, but, but it's Nelson out there. I can't fight Nelson. And, and this guy was so convinced that even though Napoleon said, look, I'm, I'm going to pull your rank. I'm going to cashier you if you don't sail. Well, he sailed, but he knew he was going to get beat, even though he had 20% more ships than Nelson had. He knew he was going to be defeated. And that's exactly what happened. He got defeated. I mean, went forth with a defeatist attitude. And so it was with the Canaanites. They couldn't defeat Israel because God had given them a spirit of defeat. The hornet that God had sent amongst the Canaanites. Well, I guess we'll have to uh, pick up from verse 30 next, looking at how what, what was God's plan for the conquest? It wasn't exactly the plan that Israel followed. And also we're told what the boundaries of the land were to be. And they didn't really turn out to be the boundaries that Israel uh, exercised. But we'll, we'll look at that next week.